0: Jim Jordan, Rob Portman, Mike DeWine, and Armin Budish are the miscreants we'll be talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my very intelligent colleagues, Chris Ranowski, Jen Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. You guys ready to banter back and forth about the news of the day? Let's go. Let's Better
1: go. I'm my intelligence here. What I
0: have <laughs> well, you're all much wiser than I am. That's why I say it. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has repeatedly decried gun violence over the past year, so why did he sign the Stand Your Ground bill that allows people to use their guns in more circumstances? Jane Cahoon, he had telegraphed he wasn't going to do this, but in the end, he caved. Is this all about that he's worried about a primary challenge from people even more far right than he is?
1: (laughs) I was going to say, you know, this was a surprise, but perhaps it shouldn't be a surprise if you do look at the big political picture. So I think there's some merit to what you're suggesting here. And as you said, he... DeWine repeatedly warned lawmakers, don't pass this bill, at least not before passing the gun reforms that he had proposed, which include a crackdown on violent offenders who illegally obtain guns. And he he sent really strong signals that he he would veto this bill. But on Monday, which was the last day he had to veto it, he signed it instead. And he said, the measure removes an ambiguity in Ohio's self-defense law. He said he's always believed that it's vital that law-abiding citizens have the right to legally protect themselves when confronted with a life-threatening situation. And uh, he also said he signed the bill in a spirit of cooperation with the um, the new General Assembly. But um, so, you know, this was greeted with delight by the Republican lawmakers who supported it, as well as gun groups like the NRA and the Buckeye Firearms, who see it as a, a reinforcement of the right of law-abiding Ohioans to defend themselves. And they say it, it favors victims, not criminals. But this bill was, this signing was met with deep, deep disappointment and and even anger Uh, by Democrats, especially black lawmakers who see this as just like a license to kill black people and other minorities. Uh, But let's talk
0: about that, because Mike DeWine has repeatedly used his pulpit on the coronavirus. He's got thousands of people watching him every day to find out what he's doing on the coronavirus, which lately is not a lot. And he often will go off subject to say, I've got I've got news articles on on people getting killed in in Ohio cities, which is largely black people that are getting killed in Ohio cities. He goes on and on about how the legislature is not passing his laws that will reduce these shootings. But the research shows stand your ground laws are generally not kind to black people. They're the ones right. who get shot when people use this defense. I, I can't. I, I did. He, by the way, in previous uh, of his briefings, he's made a big show of signing bills for the legislature. Did he do anything public about signing? this? No, no. Usually, what he was doing.
1: Yeah. It, it makes you wonder. Usually he's. All eager to sign, you know, the state fossil bill or whatever it is that he thinks is is, uh, you know, he supports. He he will have a special uh, media event for it. And this, no, it was just a, a a statement that that came out that that said he signed it. And um, I the as I said, the reaction to this was so strong. Uh, House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes had really really strong words. She she went as far as to say that only cowards would pass and sign a bill that has been proven to disproportionately harm Black people, and only cowards would support a bill that allows people to shoot first and ask questions later. And she said the blood of the lives lost from the signing and passage of this bill rests solely on those who supported it. You know, the other interesting thing is after we had the mass shooting in in Dayton in 2019, Mike DeWine went to Dayton, stood alongside Mayor Nan Whaley, and uh, people shouted at him, do something, do something about gun violence. She yesterday, while while she had stood by him when he proposed these gun reforms, she really blasted him saying that he's basically caving to extreme elements in his party instead of responding to those, you know, do something calls. And so to me, she was suggesting that, as you said at the beginning of the of your question, that he he's doing the politically easier thing with the aim of avoiding a primary challenge from the right when he's up for re-election next well, year. Well,
0: and nothing he can do is going to avoid. I mean, the the, the far right is going to go with him no matter what because of the coronavirus. What's surprising is if, if he would have run for re-election back in in May. Uh, He would have won so resoundingly with Democratic and Republican votes. But with with his mismanagement of the coronavirus in recent months, and really the we're working on stories on this, but complete mismanagement of the vaccine. Ohio is just doing a terrible job. Seems like we did not prepare for this at all. And there's nothing in place to get the needles into our arms. And and things like this. I mean, he didn't just sign this. He had telegraphed he was not going to sign it. So he had given some hope to all of the people that don't want more gun violence in the cities that he was going to do something to try and stem it. So for him to turn around and sign it, it feels like even more of a betrayal. I think that that's one of the reasons you see this strong language. And it really does feel like a. A cheap ploy to say, "Hey, look, NRA." Uh, which you know, the NRA is in complete collapse right now. Hey, NRA, I'm taking care of your wishes. I mean, taking care of the NRA seems like a yesterday thing, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And it was a big kiss to the to the new legislature. In addition, where he said, "You know, spirit of of cooperation." And by the way they're not going to do anything with his gun proposals. If he thinks this was some sort of uh, olive branch or, or whatever, they're not, they're not going to pass what he wants them to pass.
2: Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's telling me because correct me if I'm wrong, if he had refused to sign the bill, if he had just like, let it go, it would have become law anyway. So his actual signature is a statement. that Although that's a
0: coward's way out. I think he knows that just letting it become law, would people would excuse right, but, him but, but what I'm
2: saying is that like you know in either way you know if, if he had refused to sign it or, or by signing it he he is making a very definitive oh, statement in support of this and I think you know I I think it's incumbent upon us as reporters and journalists that you know we're gonna have to now you know keep a very close eye on how prosecutors in various counties rural versus urban apply this statute because you know as as history in every single legitimate study shows that this does disproportionately affect black people. This, this limits the ability for victims to get uh, compensation from people who kill their loved ones. This, I mean, there's so many ramifications of this that, I mean, it's gross. It's so gross.
0: We've talked about this repeatedly for years, including on this podcast, the legislature, the governor, everybody in office in Ohio, just about, does not care about the cities. They they completely over, look. I've said it. Overlords. I mean, this, these are not oh, bills that no anybody they care about. Our
2: money. <laughs> yeah, they,
0: they right. We fund the whole state. The cities are the economic engine for the state, but we don't have representation, even though we fund it. You keep And the two new
1: leaders of the legislature, the both the uh, House Speaker and the Senate President, are both from Lima.
0: Yeah, and you just keep wondering when will we do something about it, Laura Johnston.
3: So I just wanted to say, we just got an email from the Lawyers Foundation. I don't know how to say it, but LAWRS Foundation and Euclid NAACP. And they're already pushing back against the San your ground law. They want to repeal it. So there is going to be a push. I don't think they'll get very far, but that they recognize how bad this is for cities. And they want they want to do something about it. So they're asking other people to sign on to their proposal. But I just wanted to point out that like, how many... Press conferences or you know news briefings did DeWine open, listing right. the number of people who were getting shot yeah, that's
0: what I DC. said we, yeah we read just... news clip after news clip after news clip mm-hmm. about it, so
3: it's just he seemed to telegraph that he really cared, and then
2: right okay. like, well, he's like, like, i we had a short conversation about this yesterday, Chris, and I think it's it's amazing to watch DeWine in in three days just set all of the goodwill that he gained through the coronavirus on fire. I mean, he did. He torched it. I mean, he. it's all gone.
0: Well, the, the, <laughs> what's really killing him, and I don't know if he even realizes it, is how angry people are about the vaccine. And it's really, I'm hearing about it. Every day, it's something that I put it on my text account this morning. It'll be interesting to see what kind of reaction I get. But people want to know what what is the system? And sad answer is from everything we're hearing from people who are inside this, there isn't one. And they had nine months to put it together. So we'll have stories on that coming. I think that's going to burn the goodwill because, you know, anybody who gets the coronavirus from now on and then dies or loses somebody is going to look back and say, you you could have gotten us the vaccine. You could have you put all your bets on the vaccine, and then you didn't do anything to get it out. Hospitals are giving it to their staffs because they have extra dosages, but they've had no direction from the state on giving it to other people. So they're not going to let it go bad. So they're going they're going to vaccinate their staffs. You can't blame them. There is no direction coming on how to get this done. I don't think any school in the state has a clue yet how their teachers are going to be vaccinated and that's supposed to be happening very soon.
2: Yeah. We'll see. I, I mean, yeah, that, that's the second priority, right? I mean, right. and <laughs> gosh, I right, we got a, we're got
0: we running up against the clock. It's this week in the CLE.
2: Why does Cuyahoga County executive
0: Armin Budish say that it's okay to appoint an interim sheriff who does not meet the qualifications to hold the job as required by the County charter Laura Johnson. I, uh, I continue to be stunned at, at the the kind of incompetence coming out of the administration arm and bootish. I mean, they keep doing no bid contracts and they have gigantic overruns. This seems like such a no brainer. Just pick somebody who's qualified for the job instead of giving us legal doublespeak about about somebody who's not what's going on here.
3: Yeah, you would think that there is somebody in this county who's qualified to be sheriff, but this is a good question. This is not the first time it's happened with with Armin Budish, but he appointed Lieutenant Joseph Greiner from the Sheriff's Department as interim sheriff until a permanent replacement is selected. Greiner does not hold an associate's degree in law enforcement or criminal justice or any kind of bachelor's degree, and those are qualifications required under the county charter amendment that voters approved in 2019, and it went into effect this year, 2021. So when reporter Courtney Courtney Astolfi asked why Griner was tapped and he doesn't meet these qualifications, the county said that the law department concluded that the qualifications only apply to an appointed permanent sheriff, not an interim sheriff. So under the charter, interim appointments can last no longer than 120 days unless council grants an extension. But the council doesn't have to approve the interim. And what's what makes this even more interesting? A couple of things. But one is that past uh, the past interim sheriff who just resigned, December thirty first? Sheriff Dar- David Schilling, also lacked the required degree.
0: Well, here's the thing: the, the requirement went into effect what, uh, Sun Friday, right? It was right. The, I mean, right. We, we passed the charter amendment in 2019, and it starts now. So right out of the box, the first thing they do when the requirement goes in, and the voters voted for this is violated and come up with some legal mumbo jumbo. Courtney Astaffi also did another story on the nominations for the permanent person because one of the the finalists that's on the list doesn't have the qualifications. And that is just a mess. And, And what we heard back finally from the Buddhist administration was, you can't say this is Armin Budish's list because this is a group of nominations that are being sent to him. Like he's distancing himself from his own administration, it doesn't work that way. If you've got right. people sending you nominations for who should be finalists, and they have people that don't qualify, you're not doing a good job with who you're picking to submit. And, it, to and it made it
3: through one round of the finalists. It made it to the second round of the finalists, and that's um Cleveland Institute of Art Public Safety Chief Stephen Hammett. And he had an associate's degree in fine arts. So the law department was like, "Well, let's go back through his courses and see if he took anything in criminal justice, and maybe that applies to the." charter. They're already trying to find loopholes to get around it when you think there's got to be someone in this county of 1.3 million people who meets the requirements of having a degree in criminal justice who could do the job.
0: And of course, he's hiding behind spokespeople. You're not hearing directly from him. Mm-hmm. It's just another example. Is any Democrat going to challenge him? I mean, I know there's a lot of displeasure with this administration. I hear from people all the time that just want it to change over. We have, you know, we, It's a new form of government and it's still not on fire. I, it's just, you know, it's, Who's going to challenge this? Because it's got to be done in the Democratic primary.
3: Yeah, I, I, I haven't I, heard of anybody. <laughs> I maybe mean, the new council president. <laughs>
0: I feel certain somebody is going to raise their hand. There's a lot of displeasure out there. Chris Wernowski.
2: Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, maybe the issue is that qualified people don't want this job. You know, this, I mean, this, there is a lot of baggage that comes with being the sheriff of this county right now, especially given what, you know, what lingering problems still exist in places like the jail and, and all of that, and so I mean, <laughs> you know, given the the slew of indictments that have come out of that, I I don't know that that's a a a, a very attractive job job for for people who might have a better uh, you know a better choice <laughs> you know the, if if you're really qualified to be a sheriff, you might be able to do it somewhere that doesn't carry the weight of of what the Buddhist administration has sort of turned that job into.
0: And maybe they don't want to work for him. I mean, maybe part of the problem here is, is that this has been a mess and Mm -hmm. who wants to get into the swamp? We'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE. All right, Chris Wernowski, here's the volleyball. How is Congressman (laughs) Jim Jordan qualified to receive the nation's highest civilian honor, the Medal of Freedom, under the guidelines written by John F. Kennedy when he created it as president more than a half century ago? I that we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, this thing went to Rush Limbaugh. I mean, it's just been demeaned now to a point where I don't know if anybody really wants it. But how is Jordan qualified under the the guidelines for this thing? Right. I
2: know when I think of Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Muhammad Ali, uh Jim Jordan's right right up there with those people. Um uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess it can go to anybody. You know, he, he and, and Representative Devin Nunez, who, uh, whose I think only claim to fame is, is filing and losing lawsuits against Twitter accounts that make fun of him, um, are both, are both <laughs> going to be receiving the award. Uh, the Washington Post re- reported this first on, on Sunday. And, and you're right. He's, he, they, they're getting the award that was established by John F. Kennedy and, He's giving it to him because they are his his most vocal defenders in Congress. You know? These but are that's not people- the point, man. It's not supposed to be, hey, you're loyal to me, so I give you the medal of there's, honor. There's there's nothing that says it can't be that. You know, there's there's nothing there's nothing in it that governs it. You know? I mean look, he's he's given look, you're right. He did give it to Rush Limbaugh, which is like a big you know FU to discourse and and decency and and common sense but he's also given it to people like Tiger Woods and Bob Cousy and Roger Staubach and Antonin Scalia and Elvis Presley so you know I, I mean he has in 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 a handful of situations really given to people in the spirit of what it was sort of designed to be which is you know, to people who made exceptional contributions to world peace culture in U.S. interests. So, you know, this doesn't seem to fit that bill, but I, you know, I want to remind people that, and please don't send me emails saying that I'm comparing Jim Jordan to, to Joe Biden uh, as far as like public service is concerned. But, but Obama gave this to Joe Biden and, and you could look, you can view that through the prism of politics and say, you know, that, Obama did this under the sort of auspice of Joe Biden eventually running for president and being able to point to this as an accomplishment. And 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 yes, Obama did say that that the reason that he did give this to Joe Biden was because of his his moonshot cancer policy support. So you know, I mean, there's there's a little more meat to the argument that Joe Biden might deserve it over somebody like Jim Jordan. But
0: yeah, but you yeah, but you're right. You could you can criticize that just about as much. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's talk about an Ohio elected official who's actually doing something that is bold and right. Ohio Senator Rob Portman made a bold statement Monday about the presidential election. Jane Kuhn, I was surprised. I thought he was going to roll over like he's done often in terms of Donald Trump, but he didn't. He did something that stood to the headwinds. What was it?
1: Right. And you ought to correct yourself because in the introduction to this podcast, you called him one of the miscreants. Um, so I don't think you want to refer to him as a miscreant. No, 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 no. You're very right. You're very right. But, yeah. very right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Portman said on Monday that he's not going to join his uh, fellow Republican Trump loyalists in Congress uh, who are aiming to overturn the results of the presidential election on Wednesday. And that's when the Congress is scheduled to meet to do its constitutional duty to count and certify the Electoral College votes. Uh, Portman said, you know, the Constitution created a system for electing the president uh, through the Electoral College, and that ensures the the people in the states have the power, not the not the Congress. And he said, I can't support allowing Congress to thwart the will of the voters. So as you said, he's, he's stepping up, you know, and doing the right thing. At the same time, he made it clear that he voted for Trump. He supports his policies, and he was disappointed by the re, the results of the uh, November election. And um, so, of course, immediately Democrats are still pouncing on him, saying he's he's wants to have it both ways. And um, he, he he did you know, say, I,
0: I the, I, but I, we should we should credit his credit through. He never was in the rigged election crowd. He what he said was the the president has legal platforms to to seek redress of his grievances and he should do so if he feels that way and when it's all over uh the the election stands he never said the election was rigged he's never been part right, of that right. crowd. no he's and, not
1: no he's not one of them um, and he, he's acknowledged that, you know, every election has some degree of fraud and irregularities usually. Yeah, but, you very know, small. when people say I mean, that,
0: though, what they're what they're not acknowledging, it's like it's one-tenth of one-tenth of one-hundredth of one-thousandth <laughs> percent. I mean, yes, every election has a degree of fraud. <laughs> you can count it in your hands of the right, millions of right.
1: us. That's such a bogus line. And speaking of bogus lines, you know, the whole thing about people don't have faith in our election system, you know. So he wants a bipartisan commission to look at election integrity. Well, the the one thing they never say is that the reason people don't have faith is because of the falsehoods that have been by promoted party. By, and, his by his party. And, right. and they, spend Trump, three, yeah. they spend
0: all these months saying the, the this thing is rigged, this thing is rigged, and now they say, Well, you know, the American people believe it's rigged, so we have to investigate. Oh, and right, the only reason right. anybody believes it's rigged is because they've been lying like thieves.
2: I mean, now he, Go ahead, how, do, how do you make an argument that confidence we we just had an election with record turnout, you know, and and granted, the the turnout is abysmal when you compare it to how big the population of the United States is. But we still had more people turn out to vote in this election for both candidates than, you know, in I think what American recorded American history. So, you know, <laughs> to say to say that this is. Diminished faith in the in the system, and frankly, Chris, I I would say that this you you called this a bold move. I don't think it's bold. Yeah. <laughs> I, it I it not. is not bold. Oh, this is this is I his know. duty. It is bold in the context of. Of all of these disingenuous, lying cowards who won't stand up to the president. <laughs> yeah,
0: but look at the last four years. I mean, the the pressure on people in Portman's party has been intense to fall in lockstep behind the fictions told by the president. I think for for Rob Portman to do what he did yesterday, I don't think you can say it's anything other than bold. He's going to catch flackford for it. I bet there's going to be a a tweet coming from the president about. I hope Rob Portman gets a primary challenge and you know i mean the president almost immediately goes on the attack with anybody who stands against him oh uh, why wow. are we going to
2: have
1: Jim I, I perhaps you know, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps portman will be challenged in the primary by a presidential medal of freedom winner
2: <laughs> like, <laughs> if he doesn't run for governor
1: but that's the
2: thing
3: <laughs> This is Laura, Laura Johnston, And I think I had the same thought as Chris Warnowski that like to call this a bold move just to say I'm sticking up for the Constitution is kind of crazy. But you're right. These are weird times that we're living in. And we haven't had the, even that kind of statement. I don't I don't think maybe you could argue with me from the governor. Um so. No. No, no we, we contrast
1: this with with DeWine's actions. We were just talking about him signing the stand your ground bill right. and the political implications. He's up for reelection in two years. Well, Portman is, too. And in this case, Portman does leave himself vulnerable to not only abuse from Trump, but but a real challenge from within his his party next year. I
0: mean, I think he did something according to his conscience. And man, we've seen a lot of people not doing that. How many people, how many Republicans in the Senate tomorrow are going to challenge the election based on
2: complete fiction? Ted Cruz and company
0: 13 of
1: them, I think. Ted Cruz's
2: support of anything should tell you that it's the wrong move. (laughs) Like, like that that guy's done nothing but suck and lose elections. Like I God, like what a loser.
0: (laughs) I'm just glad to see somebody from Ohio. Voting their conscience instead of going with the political dogma of a party that seems to be out of control. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Big news last night Nighttown, the very, very well known restaurant in Cleveland Heights and a major jazz spot, has been sold. Laura Johnston, what's the deal?
3: Well, we don't know who it's sold to yet, but we do know that Brendan Ring is selling it, the business. And I think we talked about it on the podcast um, right around Thanksgiving that he had closed because of the coronavirus. And he just said he didn't want to risk his employees and, and everyone else by being open. So this is an institution that's been around since 1965. And Mark Bona did a great job on this. It broke last night. And I found this really interesting. He started as a bartender at Nighttown in 1992, became owner of the restaurant in 2001. And now he's sold the entire block because I guess a couple, I think just last year, he had bought the rest of the block at that um, intersection in Cleveland Heights. And it included the bank um, that he wanted to use for more parking and a couple of other things, a 16 unit apartment above Nighttown, a beauty salon, a bakery. And I guess Chipotle is going to go into that former first, fifth, third bank, but it's going to be up to the new owner. And all he said about that was that he was in late stage negotiations with one of the big guns in Cleveland in the restaurant world, a big chef. I'd be very, very happy if he becomes the new owner of Nighttown.
2: Is it Chef
0: Boyardee? We should remark on that, that for decades now, Nighttown has been a signature jazz spot in the country. I mean, with Marsalis when he would play at playhouse square would often go up there after the concert and play into the night. It's been for, for jazz fans. It's been these, one of these only spots in the area. And that's unlikely to continue because the reason that was a jazz spot is Brendan rings a big jazz fan. And unless you have that love, it's probably going to fade. So it's a probably a sad day for people that, that like an intimate jazz club but we'll have to see what becomes of it changes change and that's been the same for years i wonder what happens to the cleveland press club hall of fame which all those plaques are on the walls i don't imagine that that's going to get a lot of support from a lot of restaurateurs i don't think it packs the place with diners
3: uh, well, Mike Norman, our entertainment editor, did say that the that the it, jazz could continue if they keep the same booker. That Jim Wadsworth was an independent promoter and booked all the jazz shows there and has all the contacts. He's been doing it for thirty years. So you're right; it's going to depend on the owner's focus. But if they can keep the same booker, maybe they'll be able to continue that legacy. But you've
0: got to want it. You've got to yeah. love it. I mean, I think Brendan Ring loved jazz. He clearly loved jazz. Uh, he talked about on on New Year's Eve when Dominic Fair. Natchi came in to play. He's always their New Year's Eve guy. He did a virtual concert. He had to leave the room because he was sobbing because he realized it was coming to an end. So I I don't know if you get somebody with that kind of passion, but it's not like the world is replete with jazz fans. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see who the chef is and who the owners are. You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, time for one more. What were the most read suburban crime stories last year, Chris Arnowski, This was an interesting compendium. We we have a lot of metrics on our site. We can see what people are interested in. What are they interested in when it comes to suburban crime as opposed to Cleveland crime?
2: Where, yeah, I, I don't really have time to go through all twenty of these, but I will just sort of touch on what it, it was an interesting mix of of stories because it's in you know we we city crime tends to get a lot of, of notice because especially this year, last year's because we did have such a uh, a high homicide rate but we also did have a lot of homicides in in the suburbs but what i what i thought was very interesting when i i looked at this list that kaylee remington put together it, it's it's that there there were a lot of issues with, there were a lot of issues with police shootings and police incidents involving, you know, traffic stops that may or may not have been unconstitutional or, you know, uh, or may have violated people's rights. Um, but the top three stories in, in include the, the really tragic story of an 18 month old Euclid girl who was killed, uh, very violently. Um, a, a Shaker Heights father who, who, who suffered from, Depression and sent a really alarming text message to his family members before he took his own life and the life of his wife. And then a really powerful story about a man with a mental illness who spent nearly five months in jail before body cam video revealed that Garfield Heights officers had beat him and tased him and mocked him for basically walking down the street. And and that story, which was the, the most read suburban crime story that we, we had, it actually resulted in, and it, w- it was one of the reasons that the the police chief of Garfield Heights resigned. So, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's it, a lot of the crime stories that we get out of the suburbs are, you know, sort of police blottery stuff, but those were some really big issues. And, you know, Euclid continues to be a, a lightning rod for, controversy and the in the in the mall in Beachwood continues to be uh, a place where a lot of shootings happen I you know I, I think,
0: think my bet is that parking lot is a place where drug deals go down because I have close to the interstate and that's what draws it because you're right I mean it's this suburban mall with high-end stores and yet it's like what three times a year we have shootings there
2: yeah it's been <laughs> persistent I just like it, it to the point where there were I think two incidents on this list and 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 I keep you know the 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 incidents sort of tend to blend together after having edited and and you know read so many stories about it so um okay. but yeah it was a, it was an interesting list of stories to say the least
0: okay you're listening to this week in the CLE that's going to do it We didn't get to all our topics. That's always a good thing. We have robust conversations. I think our first one might be too long for the standards of uh, the Google audio that we use this for. We'll see. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE.